Hey everyone, it is Tuesday, January 17th. Welcome back. If you had a long weekend, you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, getting some incredible notes uh, from listeners of the podcast as we hit the 1 million download mark over the weekend. Yay! So, so grateful to everybody. Yeah, no, a huge, huge thank you to everyone who has listened to this podcast. Mosh, I mentioned it yesterday. I feel really lucky that we do this podcast every day. It's so much fun. I love just kind of chit-chatting about the news with you, which is kind of how we designed this. We want it to feel like you're listening in on two friends talking about the news. We're not trying to be lecturing or anything like that. We want it to be totally nonpartisan. And it's really so fun. I feel like every day I'm I'm laughing like to the point where I'm actually crying at some point. <laughs> <laughs> good tears, good tears, only good tears, despite what the uh, news gods may bring us on a daily basis. But uh, another week, a whole bunch of new headlines for us to get into. Okay, so let's get going. The godfather of the infamous Italian Cosa Nostra mafia family, is behind bars after more than three decades on the run. The latest on the Biden classified document scandal, why the government is negotiating with airlines for access to your duty, and <laughs> no, <laughs> we are incredibly not talking about the duty-free shops. Moshe, I said I like to laugh on this podcast, and there you go. Jill, we knew we wouldn't get through that headline. <laughs> Uh, The latest on LeBron James and his path to becoming the all-time highest scorer in NBA history. A new study out on the one thing that brings people the most happiness. We show our gratitude to the one and only Jennifer Coolidge. And Moshe has our On This Day in History. A powerhouse day for birthdays. We'll be going through a number of them at the end of the podcast. All right, let's start, though, abroad. Italy's most wanted mafia boss, Matteo Messina Denaro, has been arrested in Sicily after 30 years on the run. He is the alleged boss of the notorious Cosa Nostra mafia family. Back in 2002, he was tried and sentenced to life in jail in absentia over numerous murders. Uh, That basically just means that They had a trial and he was not there. Officials have been looking for him for decades. So apparently they got a tip that he was very sick. It's not clear what his medical condition is. There are only a few centers, though, in Italy that treat his specific illness. So they called each one looking to see if he was possibly there. And then they finally tracked him down to a private clinic in Sicily. He was reportedly visiting that clinic under a fake name for a course of chemotherapy. Now, more than 100 members of the armed forces were involved in his arrest. He is now 60 years old. He was taken to a secret location. And a video circulated by Italian media shows people standing in the street and applauding the Italian police as he is led away. Yeah, this is a very big deal in Italy. The BBC put together a list of just some of the murders he's already been convicted over while he was on the run. The 1992 killing of anti-mafia prosecutors, Uh, bomb attacks in Milan, Florence, and Rome in 93, Uh, a kidnapping, torture, and killing of a child of a mafioso-turned-state witness. Uh, Messino Denaro once boasted that he could fill a cemetery with his victims. The mafia boss oversaw racketeering, illegal waste dumping, money laundering, and drug trafficking for the powerful mafia family. He was reportedly the protege 
of the head of the Corleone clan, who was arrested back in 93 after 23 years on the run. Looks like he was able to outpace his mentor just a bit. He's been on the run, De Niro has, for 30 years. Experts say he is thought to be Casa Nostra's last, what they call, secret keeper. Many informers and prosecutors believe that he holds all the information and the names of those involved in several of some of the most high-profile crimes that the syndicate has committed. And although he's been a fugitive since 93, he was thought to still be issuing orders uh, to the subordinates from his various secret locations. De Niro is the last of three longtime top-level mafia bosses who all managed to elude capture for decades. They caught the first two. Now they got De Niro. All three of them, not surprisingly, living clandestinely in Sicily, going from hideout to hideout, but being protected by locals and family members who were uh, basically uh, pushing off the authorities. So Italians were reportedly glued to their screens when news of the arrest broke. For years, he had been, according to the BBC, a symbol of the state's inability to reach the upper echelons of the organized crime syndicates. So his arrest will be an unexpected sign of hope that the mafia can be eradicated even in the southern regions of the country where the state is perceived as largely absent and ineffective. Most wild to be talking about the mafia in 2023. What are they up to these days? Not to be too kind of flippant and casual, like what are they up to? But what are they up to? <laughs> yeah, so so the Sicilian mafia of yesteryear, you know, in fact, the Sicilian mafia is partially what inspired the Godfather book, right? That led to the movie. So there was a huge crackdown in the 1990s, though it appears that Casa Nostra or what's left of it is still running a bunch of drug trafficking and money laundering operations. De Niro, though, is described to be the last godfather of that family. It's described by experts as an ailing crime group that has faced a whole bunch of difficulties, including a lot of competition in the drug market. There's a bigger mafia family that authorities are trying to bring down into Italy called Indregida. Uh, they're in the southern, basically, toe of the boot of Italy. That's where they're based. They're one of the largest cocaine traffickers in the world. Now, obviously, the Casa Nostra doesn't have a website where they talk about their achievements, but reportedly... They <laughs> it's continue- not on their uh, Wikipedia page. Jill, I'll let you uh, search the Casa Nostra Wikipedia for a second. But uh, according to experts talking to the BBC, uh, Casa Nostra is still involved in infiltrating public works projects like infrastructure, buildings, etc., and doing some classic stuff like extorting small business owners who are threatened if they don't pay protection money. So they go to small business owners and they're like, you got to get protection from us. And then when they refuse, they threaten those small business owners. And by the way, it is on their Wikipedia page. (laughs) I just looked it up. (laughs) Presumably not updated by them, by others, but good to know. All right, Moshe, now to Washington politics, the latest in the classified document story. The White House Counsel's Office said yesterday no visitor logs were kept at President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. That admission comes as Republicans requested documentation on who might have visited the home while those classified documents had been stored there during the last four years. On Sunday, Republican Congressman James Comer, the new chairman of the House Oversight Committee, sent a letter for information on who visited the private home and D.C. office where about 20 classified documents were found in recent months. The White House counsel responded, quote, like every president across decades of modern history, his personal residence is personal. The Secret Service said that while a security detail is assigned to the home, it does not track who comes and goes. President Biden's team also made a point to add that upon becoming president in January of 2021, President Biden did restore the norm and tradition of keeping White House visitor logs, including publishing them regularly, 
after the previous administration ended them. That is in reference to Trump dropping the tradition and not releasing a list of who visited the White House during his time in office. So we're watching all these details day by day here as uh, new details trickle out. A reset here, uh, if you're just catching up, uh, we now know that Biden had at least 20 classified documents discovered at three different locations, uh, his office that he used after his time as VP in D.C., as well as his home garage and home office in Delaware. Uh, they have found them through a number of visits over the course of the past few months. House Republicans very interested in this. They've been demanding more information about who would have had access, uh, how the documents were discovered, et cetera, et cetera. President Biden has said so far that he was surprised that any classified documents were found at locations linked to him. Uh, and the White House says that uh, they'll be able to prove that these documents accidentally made their way with Biden after he was vice president. Aides to multiple former presidents critical of the Republicans' request for logs, noting that no previous ex-president or vice president kept logs of the people who came and went from a private home. A former Obama spokesperson tweeted Monday, either completely uninformed or deliberately misleading, not how this works. They noted that there were no logs kept for the homes of Trump, Obama, George W. Bush, or George H.W. Bush. Though either way, still a lot of questions here for both Biden and Trump on his classified document scandal. Last week, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to investigate the documents. In November, he appointed a different special counsel for Trump's classified documents. So both those special counsels working on figuring out uh, getting to the bottom of whether there was any criminality here. Um, and you can expect potential subpoenas, et cetera, throughout the year. So we'll continue to track all of that. Jill, on a related front, uh, a story came out over the weekend from Axios uh, as we start to look ahead at the 2024 presidential race, looking at why it's sort of frozen right now. Uh, they're reporting that the Republican side right now, many of the candidates who would announce are sort of playing a wait and see right now as Ron DeSantis looks like he is in the lead, but he's not making any moves. The Republicans allegedly waiting for him to falter or fade at some point this year. You know, when you watch these elections, you tend to see candidates uh, who peak with media interest and then suddenly fall apart. So it appears other Republicans looking at running, including former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Vice President Mike Pence, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and current Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, all Republicans, are sort of sitting on the sidelines right now. On the Democratic side, things are also frozen as uh, Democrats await Biden's decision on whether he will run again. Notably, back in 2019, about this time, a year before an election, you had nearly 10 Democrats already declared to be running. You usually start seeing debates by this summer. So again, things are frozen. Trump will be hitting the campaign trail later this month in South Carolina. But that's sort of your status check on 2024 right now. We should mention DeSantis has not officially said he's running. Right. And and the thought is that he might wait until the spring. But then you have other Republicans waiting for DeSantis's decision because he's still unclear. So everyone is sort of just playing this wait and see game. Uh, and it looks like right now, at least on the Republican side, that it's uh, Trump and DeSantis that they're waiting on those two. And nobody wants to get in until DeSantis gets in because they also don't want to just take on the full wrath of Trump. Uh, if they jump in. So they're all sort of like going to hold hands and jump in together, it looks like at some point. All right, Jill, we have a lot more to get to, including our speed read with the rest of the day's news. But I'm really happy to announce our newest partnership this week. Harry's is a brand I've been using for years for a great shave. My wife actually found their aftershave a couple of years ago. I immediately used it, loved it, and have been a loyal customer ever since. Then I tried their shaving cream. 
uh, sold on that as well. And so I'm so excited. They are now joining us as a partner with a special deal for Mo News listeners. You can try their shaving gel and razor with their new Truman Shave trial set. It is a $15 value that for a limited time you can get for just $3 at harrys.com slash monews. It includes a five-blade razor with a very nice weighted hand foaming shave gel, and a travel cover that covers key. You put it around the blade so you don't cut yourself in your dob kit. Keeps the blade clean. You can also schedule replacement blade deliveries whenever you need them with refills for as low as $2. I am genuinely a big fan of Harry's and don't think you'll be disappointed. So a reminder, you can get that $15 Truman Shave trial set for just $3 right now over at harrys.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. That's harrys.com slash monews for a $3 trial set. Our next sponsor this week is Athletic Greens, whose AG1 all-in-one vitamin powder has been a daily ritual for me in mornings this winter. And Jill, I understand you got some last week. Moj, I did, and I'm really excited about it. As a new parent, I am permanently sleep-deprived, and it feels like someone in my house is always sick. So I really do need all the help that I could get. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It contains over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. In addition, AG1 has pre and probiotics to support gut health. And here's the best news. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription, or you could try it one time for just a month. Again, athleticgreens.com slash monews, that's M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal, and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read from ABC News. The FAA is investigating a close call at JFK Airport on Friday evening in which two planes nearly collided on the runway. The incident took place between a Delta Airlines aircraft bound for the Dominican Republic and an American Airlines flight at about 8.45 p.m. as the Delta plane was accelerating down the runway for takeoff. The American Airlines plane appeared to surprise it by crossing the runway ahead. So what went wrong here? The American pilot apparently took a wrong turn. Thankfully, an alert air traffic controller noticed the aircraft crossing the runway in front of the departing jetliner and got to the Delta flight in time for the pilot to slam on the brakes. Take a listen to this audio. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Rejecting. All right, then. Uh, Ooh, the Delta 1943. Yeah, Delta 1943. Are you able to taxi or need a couple minutes to run checks? Yeah, we can get up the runway, uh, Delta 1943. Most, you never want to hear an air traffic controller saying, you know, the S word numerous times. No, Jill, not at all. And by the way, air traffic controllers, given the stress they deal with, are uh, typically pretty cool customers. So the fact that they're dropping an obscenity, you know something was going down there. So you hear that exchange. The Delta flight thankfully responds by slowing down. At their closest, the two planes were about a thousand feet from each other as the Delta plane was beginning to accelerate down the runway and the American Airlines was crossing in front of it. A passenger on the Delta flight told NBC that there was a split second of panic on board that sparked an audible reaction from those on the flight as the uh, pilot hit the brakes. The passenger, his name is Brian Healy, tells NBC, quote, I felt the adrenaline and then there was total quiet on the plane and then there was relief when the plane came to a stop. 
It turns out right out of that, the American flight on Friday night was able to take off on time for London. The Delta flight, though, had to return to the terminal to check on the plane. After they slammed on the brakes, they wanted to check all the parts. And by then, by the time the checks were done, some of the crew maxed out on hours. So the unfortunate passengers then had to uh, deboard the plane, go home for the night, and eventually come back to JFK on Saturday to then fly to their final destination, the Dominican Republic. Delta says they paid for hotels for all of the Delta passengers, though I feel like, Jill, that American Airlines should probably have picked up the check there, given that they caused the whole issue. And most staying with aviation from Politico, airplane laboratories deliver new hope for the CDC's variant hunt. That's right. Late last month, amid concerns over new variants expected to emerge from China's massive COVID outbreak, the Biden administration expanded a program started in late 2021 to collect voluntary nasal swabs from arriving passengers to determine which COVID strains are entering the country. I can't imagine that too many people want to give voluntary nasal swabs. Like after a flight, don't you just want to get to where you're going? Um, That is an aside. But at the same time, after a successful test run at New York's JFK airport, the CDC is pursuing talks with airlines and port authorities to start collecting samples from long-haul international flights, wastewater after they land. The small but growing traveler genomic surveillance program is seen by administration officials and public health experts as part of a revolution in biosafety infrastructure as it expands geographically and sets its sights on new pathogens. It could function as an early warning system for where and when dangerous viruses and bacteria, natural or otherwise, enter the country. An official with a firm working with the CDC says, quote, just like we have radar to look for airplanes to make sure we know what's coming into our country, or we take swabs and samples to make sure somebody walking through security doesn't have explosives on their hands. This is the same thing for pathogens or viruses or bacteria. So, Jill, they're going to get their hands a bit dirtier here. Uh, <laughs> during the early days of Omicron, the program detected both the BA2 and BA3 subvariants weeks before they showed up elsewhere in the U.S. In the pilot project at JFK that they're looking to expand, staff collected wastewater samples on flights arriving from Europe in August and September and identified some of the COVID sequences, subvariant sequences, in wastewater that were already circulating in the flight's countries of origin. Since the program ramped up in response to China's outbreak, the CDC says so far it has not found any new variants come from China. That's good news. That means that they already have a sense of what's going on. But negotiations continue because they feel like they can really get ahead of things if they expand this program. So right now, negotiations are happening with the airlines, uh, the government and the airlines, about access to their waste as the planes land here. Jill, I should add, and I think we did this on the podcast uh, over the summer, maybe while you were out, that some of this uh, data gathering is already happening on the ground here in the U.S. A number of cities, Boston, New York, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, uh, have been testing their sewage system for COVID. It's the first indication uh, that they might be seeing surges of the virus. Uh, It's not a job that I want, but it sounds pretty useful. The CDC is already now expanding the flu Uh, to the list of things that it looks to detect in sewage systems. I guess it begs the question, though, who is pooping on a plane? Not to be gross, but... But (laughs) I mean, I try to to avoid it uh, (laughs) as much as I can, but it looks like what they're looking at is international flights. Again, even international flights, I try to make a point of, you know, trying to 
avoid the facilities, especially Jill, not to get too detailed here, but like the last half of the plane ride, like it gets pretty ugly in those lavatories. Look, I guess when you got to go, you got to go. True, true. (laughs) Uh, And soon enough, Uncle Sam might have their hands on it. Okay, next up from CNBC, New Year, New Rally. Why Bitcoin is up 26% this month after a tumultuous 2022. Bitcoin has begun 2023 on a positive note with the price of the world's largest digital token up roughly 26% since the start of January. On Saturday, Bitcoin's price rose above $21,000 per coin for the first time since November 7th. It is still a far cry from the $68,990 record high that Bitcoin notched back in November of 2021, but it has uh, given some market players cause for some optimism. What goes up must come down and then go up again. It's the story of the markets, Uh, but this all follows a pretty harsh 2022, which saw a bunch of insolvencies in the crypto industry scandals. We've been telling you about the FTX scandal, um, other investigations going on, uh, new regulations on the crypto market, and questions about the reliability of some of these tokens. Analysts say that a number of factors are now behind Bitcoin's new year rise, including an increased probability of interest rates coming down at some point this year, maybe next year, as well as purchases by large buyers known as whales. Uh, Inflation is cooling down. Economic indicators suggest a slowing of the U.S. economic activity, though, uh, you know, we're still kind of far out here, Jill. And I wonder how many uh, people have been flushed out by just the collapse of crypto last year after a really tough year. You know, there's a lot of talk of the crypto winter lasting for a while, maybe a couple of years here. But at least some indications, at least for the first couple weeks of January, that uh, some people are uh, believers or at least believers they can make money in it again. All right, Joe, this is one story I'm watching via ESPN. LeBron James became the second player in NBA history to score 38,000 career points. That came during the Lakers 76ers game over the weekend on Sunday. James put up 35 points. The Lakers are not off to a great start this season, but everyone right now is really much more focused on when James becomes the all-time scoring leader in NBA history. So James joined Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the only member of the NBA's 38,000-point club. Abdul-Jabbar sits atop the list right now with 38,387 points. James is set to pass him as the career scoring leader sometime next month if he remains at the current pace, somewhere between the next 10 to 13 games, depending on how many points he scores. So he's just about 300 points or so behind Abdul-Jabbar. A really remarkable feat. James right now in his 20th season in the league, though right now he does not want to talk about the milestone. He, He remains very focused. From NPR, what is the number one thing to change to be happier? That is the question that Dr. Robert Waldinger has been investigating for decades as the director of the world's longest running scientific study of happiness. He says that people should invest in their relationships with other people. This study followed people through decades, consulting with their parents and now their children, who are mostly of the baby boomer generation. His study has shown that the strongest predictors for people to maintain their happiness and health throughout the course of their lives were people who described their relationships as having satisfying levels of quality and warmth. And that applies to a wide breadth of interactions in your daily life from spouses, close friends, and colleagues to the barista who makes your morning coffee or the person delivering your mail. Now, this is a job I want. Literally the director of the Scientific Study of Happiness versus that job a couple stories ago, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Waldinger tells NPR that uh, they've tracked these lives for eight decades, for 80 years. And the wonderful thing about these life stories is he has learned it is never too late, that there were people who thought they were never going to have good relationships or friendships, and then they found a new group of friends in their 60s or their 70s. There were people in his study who found romance for the first time in their lives in their 80s. And so the message that he is getting from studying all these lives is that it is never too late. So NPR adds here that it's never too late to reach out to a friend, a family member, or a loved one. It's never too late to send a quick message and catch up, uh, knowing that relationships are the key to happiness here. Jill, I am very grateful for you and your friendship. (laughs) I am, Moshe, I I second that. On a serious note, I had felt towards the end of the pandemic, I was pregnant, I was still kind of in that pandemic bubble for a long time, that I had let some of my friendships not go, but I I hadn't put as much effort into them, especially because I wasn't really seeing that many people socially. And so as soon as I had uh, my son, I did make a bigger effort to reach out to some of my friends and just, again, put that effort in there because relationships need nurturing. And I will say I'm a lot happier because of it. And and what I love about the story is that, you know, like the story of people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, finding new friendships for the first time, that it's never too late. Jill, it takes me to a CBS Sunday morning piece, which I think everyone should watch, uh, that profiled and interviewed Sally Field, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin uh, about friendship. Uh, And I thought that Jane Fonda had some really remarkable things to talk, to say about meeting new friends and meeting new people in her 60s, in her 70s. Uh, and it was, it was it's sort of a humorous exchange with Sally Field and Lily Tomlin. I suggest people watch it. But again, it, it just shows you that um, that those relationships really matter and, you know, help you live longer. I saw that clip. It's hysterical because I guess Jane Fonda was saying that Sally Fields is a little bit of a, a recluse or just kind of like a loner. And Jane yeah. Fonda is like, we are going to become friends if it's the last thing that we do. And it weirdly reminded me of my friendship <laughs> With with one of my college friends where we had gone on a summer program earlier and she, for whatever reason, wasn't that keen on us being two doors down from each other in our dorm. Um, and I just and I was just <laughs> you were Jane Fonda. It was Jane case. Fonda. Yeah. And now she's still one of my closest friends. Yeah. yeah. Sally Field and Lily Tomlin are like, I hate people. I don't like socializing. <laughs> but like Jane was so insistent. We're like, fine, we'll be your friend. And speaking of happy, can we talk about Jennifer Coolidge for a second? After officially becoming a Golden Globe winner last week, Coolidge added another award to her collection this weekend at the Critics' Choice Award. The 61-year-old actress was crowned Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for her role in The White Lotus. Like the legend she is, Coolidge used her acceptance speech to offer up some words of encouragement to anyone who has ever given up hope. Take a listen. I just want to say to all the people out there, it's it's for anyone who's sort of given up hope. I hope this gives you inspiration. It's not over till it's over. It's it's not over till you're dead. So please, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mosh, Stifler's mom, giving that amazing speech, not only at the Critics' Choice Awards, but also at the Globes last week. Yeah, w- Hollywood has really uh, deprived us for 20 years, Jill, of uh, Coolidge award show speeches. I wish they can go back and give her some best actresses for um, her, I think it was five American Pie movies, ultimately, that she said she did. So she gave that speech over the weekend, and then last week was the Golden Globes. Uh, and I posted a clip of it, which more than a million people have watched on my Instagram page, just just the version that I posted of her speech at the Golden Globes. Let's take a listen to part of it, uh, very emotional stuff. 
So many people are in this room here. There were like five people that, that kept me going for, you know, 20 years with these little jobs. You know, these, these little jobs that like kept me going. I, there was, it was like five, five casting. It was like, you know, you, Ryan, and, um, well, who else was there? It was just you, Ryan. I don't know. Jill, if there's an Emmy for best awards uh, acceptance speech, she should be nominated <laughs> for that. Um, they should add that category next fall. But, you know, really honest stuff about almost giving up acting, really struggling from job to job, which is the story of a lot of people in acting and some who have to give up the profession. Um, I was listening recently to an interview that um, John Hamm did on Howard Stern where he was talking about struggling and almost giving up the profession for so many years until finally, you know, more than a decade in, Mad Men comes along. Um, and the struggle and, and the consideration that many give at some point, like, maybe I should just throw up my hands, but Jennifer Coolidge, you know, persisted and persisted and, you know, now winning some of her first awards now in her 60s. I feel like the theme of today's podcast, and I believe that we talked about this last week as well, is that life is long and you shouldn't give up. And we were joking that Forbes needs to do a, a 40 over 40 list. Jennifer Coolidge should be on the list. But it, but this is yeah. why. It's like, you know, yes, youth is wonderful, but so is age and, and having experience and, and living. And wisdom. And yes. the wisdom that, and the wisdom that comes with it. All right, Jill. Uh, I, I hope you've already bought the 40 over 40 URL in your, uh, l- l- let me know what you need me to do to help make that happen. Mosh, just keep crushing it and I'll put you on that 40 over 40 list. (laughs) (laughs) All right, as we talk nostalgia, as we talk about wisdom with age, that brings us to on this day today on January 17th. Uh, We should tell everyone on this day in history now has a sponsor here on the Mo News Podcast. Our first sponsor is Magic Spoon Cereal. I've just started to try a few of their flavors. I'm into their peanut butter flavor so far. They also have Frosty, Cocoa, Fruity sort of takes you back to your time as a kid watching cartoons, eating cereal. The great thing, though, with Magic Spoon is it's gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and no sugar. You can head over to magicspoon.com slash monews to grab a variety pack and try it today. The promo code, again, is monews, and at checkout, it'll save you $5 off your order. With that, uh, a lot of birthdays today, Jill. Uh, On January 17th, I was noting earlier in the podcast, it's a powerhouse day. James Earl Jones turns 92 today. Steve Harvey is 66. Jim Carrey is 61. And Michelle Obama is 59. But when you look back at history, also a whole bunch of others born January 17th, Benjamin Franklin, Muhammad Ali, and Betty White, who, of course, we lost last year, also January 17th birthdays. That is some list, Mosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyone who has a kid born on January 17th, high expectations for those kids uh, in a whole bunch of different fields. All right. Also on this day, uh, a little bit of history here. Let's start 130 years ago. On this day in 1893, a small group of business and plantation owners in Hawaii lead a coup that ousts the Queen of Hawaii, Queen Lilio Kalani from power. This came six years after her predecessor, her brother, who was king, was forced to sign a new constitution at gunpoint that stripped him of most of his powers. The coup leaders who bring down the queen then push for the U.S. to annex Hawaii, which it ultimately does in 1898. It becomes a state uh, 50 years or so later. But many people don't know, Jill, the dark side to how Hawaii became a state here. It is certainly something the native Hawaiians remember. Okay, one more bit of history, a little more recently, 39 years ago today, on January 17th, 1984, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the sale and use of home video recorders 
VHS recorders to tape television programming was legal. This was a huge fight show that went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, the studios at the time did not want people to have the ability to tape things on their tape recorders. The Supreme Court rules not illegal to tape shows. It was a pretty close decision. It was a 5-4 decision. And it's interesting because in later years, Jill, movie industry executives would admit that they made a huge error in fighting VHS recorders because they ultimately made billions of dollars off of VHS tapes, DVDs, etc. Uh, but they almost, you know, by one vote, they almost would have made VHS recorders illegal. Do you remember using VHS tapes to record your favorite shows? I remember we used to tape Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I'd rewind it and I'd be like, no, I can't look. And then they had the separate uh, video rewinders, those like little singular machines. Like, you know, it felt like very fancy to have Ooh, one. Oh, I never like, had one of those. Separate tape rewinder machines. Yeah, we had one of those. Uh, and then for a while you had to like hit play record on the VHS machine, but then they came out with mach machines that you could time it, like they had a clock on it. Anyway, the, the Gen Zers will never understand the lengths <laughs> we had to go through to like catch every episode of our favorite show. And then of course, if you missed it and you didn't record it, you'd have to watch the TV guide over the summer to see when they were playing like season four, episode 11 again on a random Thursday night in you know July. And if you miss that, then you just never know what happened in that episode. <laughs> and of course, one piece of music history on this day, Jill, a little more recently, 12 years ago today, the Kelly Clarkson single, Stronger, What Doesn't Kill You, was released in the U.S. What doesn't kill you makes you strong. I can't. You know what? She's one of those people also who I probably shouldn't try to replicate her singing. But can yeah. you believe that she got her start on American Idol? Really a, a, amazing. When you look at um, just the really handful, you could say, of uh, superstars who started on a game show. I feel like Star Search back in the day had a bunch of uh, big ones, but American Idol, you really only have a, a handful of uh, of winners that really went on. And I, I, I would say Kelly, probably number one. She has her talk show. She is a major success story. All right, that wraps up our On This Day in History. Again, the sponsor, uh, special thanks to Magic Spoon Cereal. Remember to get your next bowl of Magic Spoon Cereal over at magicspoon.com slash monews. Use the monews code M-O-N-E-W-S to get $5 off. All right, we want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. It helps us continue to grow. Every review matters, so we appreciate all of you who take a quick moment to give us one of those five-star reviews, maybe some kind words over on Apple. Love reading it and uh, love all constructive feedback. You can email us over at podcast at mo.news. And thanks to all of you who have made uh, this podcast such a success as we go on to 2 million. Uh, we're on the road to 2 million downloads, Jill, after hitting 1 million over the weekend. Beyond the podcast, you can follow us on Instagram, the Mo News Instagram account at M-O-S-H-E-H. -E all right, bye everyone.